a wise man builds his life on Jesus' instructions, like a house built on a solid foundation. By tuning in today, you are pouring into your life. This message is part of the teaching provided by House on the Rock Fellowship, a church caring for the Miami Valley region. Before you listen, be sure to access the notes in the download section of the message page. Have a Bible ready. Thank you for being our guest. What's the first thing that you do when you walk into a room? And what's the one thing every kid forgets to do when he leaves? What is it? The lights, right? You walk into a room, first thing you do, you look for that light switch. What's the one thing that every kid forgets to do when they leave a room? Man, my kids are so concerned that I live in a home of hospitality and brightness and service and love that they always leave the lights on for me. No matter what. You know why, why? Why do we do that? Why do we look for lights? Why do we have the, want to have the lights on? Because it's really hard to do something if you can't see something, isn't it? Really hard to do anything if you can't see anything. So we want to turn the lights on. I experienced that a few weeks ago. Uh, the food disposal in the sink had gotten jammed up. I don't know whose fault it was. Doesn't matter. It had gotten jammed up. Something was in there. And it wasn't one of those like it's working through something like... Rrr, rrr, rrr. It was like, because it's a plumbing thing, right? And some of you like plumbing. Any of you? No, no one likes plumbing. Plumbers don't even like plumbing. Because where there's water, there's a way. They'll, they'll, and you're like, oh, so. And I've got these big paw hands that don't deal well in small spaces and big shoulders and everything else that goes along with it. And you got to get up in under the sink to get this unit down. First thing, I turned off the electricity. I did turn off the electricity. And I had Jackson grab a light. Because Jackson, he has to shine the light for me so I can look under the sink so I can find out how to get the unit down. Because you can't, if you can't see anything, you can't do anything. Jackson's shining the light. I'm losing my faith multiple times. I get the unit down. And, I mean, you know what this thing is, right? You know what it does. You know what's inside of there. And it's bad. And you've got to stick your... And it doesn't fit real well. And as Jackson, shine a light. Jackson, shine a light. Because if you can't see something, then you can't do something. And so he's shining the light. And I'm trying to use these little pliers to grab stuff to get things wedged out from the teeth that do the rah-rah part. And, and finally, we got it out. And we got it back up there. And Jackson had to shine the light. Because if you can't see, then you can't do. Right? right we understand that. We understand that. If you can't see, then you can't do. Uh, fall is coming, right? And some of you have been leaving in the morning. You've sensed that and you felt that. Normally when you go out, maybe you go out with the sun. You welcome the day with the sun. And it seems now that as you welcome the day, the sun has slept in on you, right? Right? And you feel that. You feel that environment. You feel that space. You feel that it is dark. And you don't know what to do. And you wonder, can you really make a difference at all when it's so dark out? Elections and Supreme Court appointees and riots and disgruntled this and it's self-centered that and Facebook that and family member this and 
economy that? Can I really do anything when it's so dark? Maybe we can press into that today. Maybe we could have that kind of discussion. What do you do when it's so dark? What does it take to shine bright when it's so dark? We began a series a few weeks ago in the book of Revelation, a book that some of you have self-confessed scares the snot out of you, and you skip over when you do your Bible reading, right? So you're like, I don't read that book. Like, that's the stuff of nightmares, monsters and beasts and angels, and like, Jude, skip Revelation, start reading back in Genesis again. It's never, but it wasn't given for that. It wasn't written for that. It was given for hope. It was given for encouragement. How to be steadfast. How to patiently endure the trials that you face. And so we've been diving into the book of Revelation together. And, and a few weeks ago, just, just in the, towards the beginning of it, we unpacked seven big ideas and one of them that God has a purpose and he's working through his people. Israel came Jesus in the church, but there's this dragon, this, this force, this spiritual being that is working to thwart and destroy God's purpose at every turn. And it empowers geopolitical powers systems of evil on a big scale and on a small scale, on a local scale, where we live, where we work, where we practice our faith. And today we're really going to get boots on the ground. We've been flying pretty high for the last few weeks, but we're going to get real specific where we live, where churches function. What does it mean to engage in that spiritual battle? And what does it take to shine bright? In the beginning of the book of Revelation, there are seven letters to seven churches. Actual, real churches that really existed in real time. There are some who believe that these letters represent epics of churches and ages of churches, and that's wrong. That's not how this book was written, and that's not why it was given. It was given to real people who are trying to live out their faith in a real way. So we're going to look at the first four of them today. Okay? And so I would encourage you to find Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. And take out the notes that you received when you walked in. Let's see how we can shine bright when we would go camping. Growing up, one of the first things that my dad would do was he would take out the old Coleman lantern. Coleman lantern that you filled up with fuel and you had to prime it. If you had one of those, remember one of those, you can still hear the sound of what it was like when you lit that sucker up, the smell of it, and how much light that thing put out. I mean, it was like, man, it was light everywhere. It lit up everything. Well, in the dark world, Jesus has left lanterns behind, but he expects those lanterns to burn bright. See, let's, let's see what it takes to burn bright as we look at some of these churches, four of them today, to help us realize that these churches happen in real time and in real places. They had a real context. I want to share some of that context with you as we look at each of the churches together, and then it'll help us as we read through the oracles that Jesus gives to the churches. This is from Metzger's book, Breaking the Code. It's one of the books I suggested if you want to dive a little bit deeper into the book of Revelation. Let me read something for you. This is on uh, the church in Ephesus. 
Ephesus was the principal city of Asia Minor with a population of about 250,000. Wealthy, cosmopolitan. Think New York City. Trade passed through it by land and water. It was the major commercial hub and seaport of the region. Ephesus had become an epicenter of imperial cult in Asia Minor, with a temple to the goddess Roma and the divine Augustus. That's the Caesar. It was also the home of one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple of Diana, the great mother goddess. And ancient descriptions of the temple testify to the architectural grandeur of the building. Its roof was held over 60 feet aloft, resting upon over 100 columns and covering a space greater than twice the size of an American football field. This is a wealthy, influential epicenter. This is a city of great significance. An epicenter of imperial cult worship. Meaning you were expected to go to the temple. Everyone was. To recognize that Caesar is the son of God and to make a token donation or demonstration of your allegiance. And in this area, the apostle Paul started a church about 40 years before this. We have that letter, the letter to the church of, of Ephesians. And Paul admonished this church to resist false teachers and to stand firm on what is truth. And here was a church that had a great beginning, but here's a church that receives a letter from Jesus. Let's hear what he had to say as he looked at the church. This is Revelation 2, starting in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake and you have not grown weary. These are all good things. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent. Do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To shine bright takes spirit-fueled love. Write that down in your notes. For a church to shine bright... To make a difference in our dark world, we need spirit-fueled love. Just like my dad's Coleman lantern needed fuel put in it. To do what we need to do in a world of darkness, we need spirit-fueled love. Here was a church that was holding to the truth, just as the Apostle Paul had taught it, but it, they had forgotten something. And Jesus calls them out on it. He says, you guys have forgotten how to love each other. You've forgotten how to love the world around you. Because love takes all of that. Love is hospitality. Love is serving one another and serving others. Love is an outside word. It's not an inside word. You can say that you love, 
but I won't know that until you show me that you love. It says, you have forgotten to love. Yeah, you've gotten your theology right, and that's important. You know the way of truth, but you've forgotten that that way of truth is also the way of love. And so he says, repent, turn back. Turn back to doing those things that you did in the beginning as you cared for one another and fed your neighbors who were lacking, as you served those that were around you, as you made others your priority. I'm glad that you got your, your, your truth right. But the flame of love that you had inside of you has grown dim and you need the spirit to fuel that love again. Are you loving? Are you loving? Would your neighbor call you loving? Coworker call you loving? People, would people call our fellowship loving? Some people have come and said, this is a very loving church. Some people have left here and said, this is a not a loving church. Would Jesus say that we need to remember our first love? Spirit-fueled love. Let's see what else. Let's keep going. I want you to jump over to the letter to the church in Pergamum. We're going to skip over Smyrna and come back. Don't worry, we'll get to it. I promise. Pergamum, this oracle comes in verse 12. But again, let me give you a little bit of their context and what they were dealing with in their community where God had planted them. This is what Mesker has to say. Pergamum, about 50 miles north of Smyrna, was a city that had many claims to distinction. Since the second century before Christ, it was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. No traveler could visit Pergamum without being impressed by all of its temples and its altars. The greater part of the city stood in the shadow of a great hill that was dotted with dozens of temples to pagan gods. Prominently set on a terrace near the top of a hill stood an immense altar to Zeus. The altar stood on a huge platform surrounded by colonnades and the whole structure looked like an enormous throne. On this platform, animal sacrifices were burned 24 hours a day and constantly changing team of priests. The overpowering smell of animal flesh burning permeated the air of Pergamum, and all day long a column of smoke could be seen for miles around, serving to keep the supremacy of Zeus ever in the public eye. This remains the likeliest landmark that the glorified Christ had in mind when he spoke of Satan's throne. We're going to read about that. This is all the more likely as Jews commonly identified pagan gods with demons. Well, who better to identify Zeus, the chief of gods, within Satan, the chief of demons? There were temples to Athena and Dionysus, Hera, Demeter, also been identified here on the Acropolis. It's possible then that John was also referring to the city, the city as Satan, Satan's throne in a general way in view of such multiplicity of forms of paganism. Pergamum was not an easy city for Christians to live in. Pergamum was not an easy city for Christians to live in. The most vicious persecution 
from local lackeys and the beasts and the monsters of sin and evil were seen here in Pergamum as we look at the archaeology. It's the seat of the regional governor. And there were many, many pressures to compromise. Temptations, if you will. So let's see how they were doing and what Jesus has to say to this church. This is uh, Revelation 2, verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Because this will go well. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Hold fast like Antipas. Antipas was a leader within this community. And no doubt everyone who heard these oracles would have remembered the faithfulness of Antipas, who was called a faithful witness. There's that term again that keeps coming up in this book. Jesus was called a faithful witness. John was put forth as a witness. Here is someone who is a faithful witness who died giving witness of Jesus. He says, hey, you're doing, there's good stuff that's going on, but I have a few things against you. You have a Balaam problem. Balaam was an Old Testament prophet who was contracted to bring spiritual condemnation against Israel. He was hired by a guy named Balak. And Balak wanted Israel stopped, and so he hired Balaam to do a full-front spiritual assault on Israel. But he couldn't pull it off. Every time he tried to curse them, he ended up blessing them. He could not do a full frontal assault. He couldn't bring it down through the front door. So Balaam says, hey, I have an idea. Let's get him by the back door. Let's get him by the bedroom door. So he counseled Balak, said, send in some women. Tempt them sexually and they will fall spiritually. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. And so it's maybe with that idea in mind, we can understand the Nicolaitans. Um, Theologians, Bible people go back and forth on exactly what was going on. But here was some kind of a sect or a group that was tempting God's people to compromise in temple worship and in their sexual holiness. He says, don't compromise. You gotta watch out for what happens through the back door. A sexual falling will lead to a spiritual falling. They had a, they had a hard time saying no to their culture. This was the church's error. And so the light was going dim. Well, if Ephesus needed spirit-fueled love, here was a church that needed spirit-fueled faithfulness. Faithfulness. Write that down with me. They need spirit-fueled faithfulness. 
Here's a letter where Jesus is calling them to remember him on a very relational, intimate level. Faithfulness. Imagine a husband who's not at home with his family for dinner, not gathering on the table with his kids or his wife because he's out eating with someone else. Imagine a, a wife going out to be with other men instead of be with her family. The issue is faithfulness. Got someone else on the side, got something else on the side. And Jesus says to the church, you got, you got some other things on the side. It's not just me. You got some other things going on. You're worshiping at other temples. You're doing things that you shouldn't be doing with other people. Just like Balaam had been tempted, you have been tempted, and you are falling away. He says, but I need you to repent. I need you to come back, to hear what the Spirit is telling you. Conquer. Don't compromise. Be faithful. Are you faithful? Are you faithful to Jesus? You got other things on the side. Is it Jesus and? Is it Jesus plus? If your spouse wouldn't tolerate that, why are you making Jesus tolerate it? Shining bright, you need love, you need to be faithful. Let's look at another letter. Another letter. This is to the church in Thyatira. Again, let me give us some context. Thyatira. Thyatira is about 45 miles southeast on the road of Pergamum. It was a town of considerable commercial importance in which there were many traders and artisans. Ancient records indicate the presence there of many guilds. Archaeologists have found inscriptions that mention guilds of wool workers and linen workers, makers of outer garments, dyers, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, slave dealers, and bronze smiths. Such guilds combined some of the features of our modern trade unions with certain religious features. Banquets of the members of the guild often took place within a pagan temple or shrine where an animal was offered to the gods and then eaten by the members of the guild. This obviously put Christians in a difficult dilemma. If they did not participate in such feasts and ceremonies of the guild, they would find it more challenging to make a living as the business and social networks offered by the guild brought significant advantage. If they did participate, however, they're being unfaithful to the Lord who called for exclusive worship and the witness that this bore. Here's a church that suffered from tremendous economic temptations and trials and needed to know where to draw certain lines. Let's see if they were doing a good job or not. This is Revelation 2. I'm going to start reading in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like the flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, that your latter works exceed the first. It's all good stuff. 
But I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent. She refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. I will strike her children dead. All the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod as when an earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from heaven, my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You are making progress. I, I, I know, I've seen your love and your faithfulness, your service, your patient endurance. You are, you are doing better now than you were in the beginning. They are growing. They are growing. But he says, hey, there's a challenge and there's a serious threat. You have a Jezebel problem. One church had a Balaam problem. This church has a Jezebel problem. Jezebel was a foreign queen that had come in and was tempting Israel to worship other gods in addition to Yahweh. She kind of became the idea, the embodiment of adultery and idolatry. So it's hard to say if this is a real woman named Jezebel. It's kind of like naming your son Lucifer. You're setting him up <laughs> in some ways. Or does she just represent an idea? Or of this teaching that was working its way in and out of the church. It's interesting, one of the big trades industries in Thyatira was the production of coinage, uh, bronze industry and copper industry. And that's how Jesus introduces himself. On the local coin was the picture of Caesar. And it said underneath that, son of God. And Jesus introduces himself, do you see, in the beginning of this, this oracle, the words of him. He says, I am the what? The son of God. Eyes like flame, feet like burnished bronze. One church had forgotten how to love. One needed faithfulness. Here is a church tempted to to compromise and unable to discern what is true and what is false and teaching had worked its way in and they weren't able to know what was right and wrong. To burn bright, to shine bright, needs spirit-fueled discernment. Discernment. Let's write that one down too. To discern what is right and to discern what is wrong. Here's a woman who calls herself, verse 20, a prophetess and is teaching and seducing servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. These were cultural temptations. These were cultural habits and practices participating in what's going on around them. 
And here's a church that needed to learn how to discern where to draw lines with their culture and with their community. This is something that we all need to deal with. How far is too far? Where do I need to draw lines in my business habits and relationships? Business protocols. This is something that the church dealt with for decades. In Acts 15, the leaders get together and they're trying to figure out how to encourage and disciple young Christians up in the city of Antioch. He says, hey, don't eat food that's been sacrificed to idols. What that was referring to is uh, in these pagan temples, they, people would bring an animal. Part of that animal would be sacrificed to the local god whatever it is, and the rest of that animal would go down to the butcher shop and you could buy food there. You got your meat and the money went to subsidize what was going on in that temple. You get your food, you're supporting bad practices and evil institutions and systems of corruption. So they're just like, don't, don't do that. Apostle Paul steps up in a letter to the church in Corinth. He says, it's just food. It's just food. That's, that's not the issue. Rather, don't worship idols. So you got some leaders saying this and some leaders saying that. Calls for discernment. Spirit-fueled discernment. Gathering in community. Hey, which way should we go? What should we do? What is right? What is wrong? This isn't an answer book. It is a guide into the mystery of a relationship with the one who's created all things. And so we need to discern what needs to be done. Without spiritual discernment, we plant seeds of compromise and those seeds grow up to weeds that will later choke us and choke the faith of our kids. Parents, where you compromise and lack discernment, your children are forced to eat the fruit. So it's something that parents, we must take very seriously. Very seriously. Unlike the local coin that bore the stamp Son of God, we actually bear the image of God and should reflect Him well and not be tarnished. Oh, I skipped over a letter, didn't I? I skipped over a group, and there's a reason for that. I want to go back and look at that one as we wind this up. And that's to the letter in the church in Smyrna. Let me give you some context to that church. Smyrna, this is chapter 2, verse 8. Let me read from Metzger's book just to give us an anchoring. And the message traveling, messenger traveling about 35 miles north of Ephesus would reach another great city of Asia Minor, Smyrna. Today, that city is called Izmir. A city of great antiquity, Smyrna became large and prosperous, a big commercial center. The city was renowned for its loyalty to Rome and its ritual worship of the emperor. In 195 BC, 300 years before the writing of the book of Revelation, the people of Smyrna dedicated the world's first temple to the goddess Roma. In AD 26, almost 70 years before John's banishment, the writer, Smyrna dedicated a magnificent temple in honor of the emperor winning them the name Temple Warden for their imperial cult. The letter to the church in Smyrna is the shortest of the seven messages. And like the letter to the church in Philadelphia, it doesn't contain any rebuke, only commendation. 
The Christians at Smyrna had to endure persecution and deprivation due no doubt to their refusal to take part in ceremonies connected with the emperor worship. Their fidelity to the worship of the one God, to Jesus, brought them to economic hardship. This is the letter you want to get. This is the letter from Jesus you want to receive. Let's see what Jesus has to say to the church in Smyrna. Revelation 2, starting in verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. The slander of those who say that they're Jews and they're not, they're a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. For 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. It's short. It's sweet. And note the reversal. I know you are poor, but you are rich. You don't have the material affluence of those around you. Your house isn't that house. Your car isn't that car. You struggle to get things together because you're not compromising. I know how poor you are, but you are rich spiritually. Better than the alternate, right? I know you've got that house. I know you got that stuff. I know you got that phone. I know you got that ESPN package. <laughs> you got all that stuff. But you are bankrupt spiritually. Look at, the, look at the tribulation that's repeated. I know you have gone through tribulation and you will go through tribulation because part of Burning Bright and the big purpose behind this book is it calls for spirit-fueled suffering. Spirit-fueled suffering. I know we can handle the love word and the faithfulness and the, the discernment, but Paul, the suffering part, the suffering was the part that they had gotten right and they understood. And they had received it. To be faithful, to discern correctly, to love, invites suffering. Our faithfulness fosters friction with the world. I will suffer for my faith or my faith will suffer. And this is the lesson that the Christians here in this church had learned. And so to that he says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. That's the crown that you received for finishing and running the race in the Olympiad. That's the, the victor's crown for running and doing what was put in front of you. You ran your race. 
Here's your crown. Parents, that's the crown you want your kids to go away with. That's the crown you want your kids to learn to chase after. That they learn to be faithful unto death. That we teach them to love. We teach them to be faithful in their faith. We teach them to discern. And they understand that, you know what, at times, to choose Jesus, I'm going to suffer for that. I'm going to suffer for that. And to that, Jesus is the one who conquers. That's a military term. It means to persevere in the midst of hardship. That should let us know that the Christian life is hard. Being faithful to Jesus is hard. And so to each letter, he says, to the one who conquers, to the one who perseveres. Ephesus, he says, there's the tree of life. A white stone that only you know. That's talking about, that's an intimacy term. A hidden manna, he, he, he calls out. Shared rule, the morning star, not being harmed by the second death. All these promises to the one who endures the suffering. So repent and hold fast. In the, the beginning, you take out your notes. We go back to that opening question. I mean, let's ask ourselves that question again, right? Can I really make a... Oh, snap, I made a mistake in the notes. Did you guys catch that? You see that? It happens to me all the time. Sometimes my carnality gets the best of me. Can I really... I put the wrong pronoun there, didn't I? Can I... I must be a self-centered American that thinks the world rotates around them. Will you please mark out the word I and write in the word we? How do we make a difference? That's the question. Because these are letters to individuals? No, they're letters to churches. Communities of faith. Love is something that happens in the community of faith. Faithfulness is held accountable in the community of faith. Discerning what the Spirit would have us do happens within the community of faith. Our suffering one with another unto Christ happens in the community of faith. This is not about us. The Spirit works through us, for us, unto us, and fuels us. This is the, co this is the trial of COVID, right? You are better off by yourself. You are safer alone. While that might be true physically, it's certainly not true spiritually. Each church in the beginning of its oracle was given an image of Jesus that comes from chapter one. Eyes of flame and burnished bronze, the two-edged sword, the first and the last. This is all pointing them back to have a, a complete picture of Jesus and how important that is. This is the one who's talking to them. At the end of each oracle, there's this admonition to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So maybe we can put those two ideas together and understand that's what it means to conquer. How do we conquer? I need to focus on Christ. I need to heed the Spirit. In the bottom of your notes. I need to focus on Christ. I need to heed the Spirit. 
The opening of the book is a vision, a revelation, an apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And so it's learning to stay focused on Christ and all that he is in the midst of my trial and hardship. Teaching my children to focus on Christ. Grandchildren to focus on Christ. It's easy for this to go to the left. It's easy for this to go to the right. It's easier for this to get out of focus. I need to keep Christ in front of me all the time. He's the example of love and faithfulness. He's the example of what, what it is right and what is wrong. He shows me how to suffer victoriously, right? And heeding the Spirit means listening to the Spirit, gathering in community, discerning what needs to be done and what needs to happen. And how church fits into that. So let's just real quickly say something about church. Based on what we see here, every church has good things, every church has bad things, right? Smyrna is the exception to the rule. Every church has got some good stuff. We've got some good stuff going on. We've got some things that we need to work on individually, corporately. And so always seeking the spirit and asking the spirit, what is Jesus saying to us? How do we best love? How are we faithful? What do we need to discern? The idea of a Christian not in relationship with community is an anomaly in the Bible. But it's in community that we work it out together. How do we deal with the dark? We do these things together. As the artists to come up. As they're coming up, I, I want to tell you about someone else here that's going on in this letter that would have been sitting next to you as it was being read. When John's letter came to Smyrna, there was a teen listening to it, and his name was Polycarp. Polycarp lived in the community of Smyrna. He understood how he was suffering, how his fellow family members were suffering. He was discipled by John the Apostle, John that followed Jesus. Polycarp heard firsthand the stories about Jesus. Discipled by John, learning the importance of love and faithfulness and, and, and discipleship and discernment. And continued to grow in his faith as a teenager into someone who became the overseer, the spiritual overseer appointed by the apostle to care for this area. A humble man, a gentle man, a caring man. And also a man in his later years that became the target by local lackeys and the forces of darkness seeking to destroy him and persecute him and kill him. So when he was 86 years old, 87 years old, um, knowing that he was being hunted by local officials in Smyrna, the church community said, would you please go out of town? Will you please go to a safe place where they can't find you? They're going to find you here in town. He's like, I'm not going out. To town. Please, will you please go out of town? We're not asking you to hide. So he did. He went to a farm outside of Smyrna where he would pray day in and day out as a good pastor does. 
And in the middle of one of those prayers, he shared with somebody else that he had a vision of his bed catching on fire, which led him to believe that he was going to be burned at the stake for his faith. God's will be done. Roman officials tracked down two of the servants from the house that um, Polycarp lived in when he was in the city proper. And after torturing them, one of them divulged the fact that Polycarp was living in this farm outside of town. And so troops on their horses with swords and spears, spears ablazing burst into the house one night, waking Polycarp up. He walked down the steps, putting on his robe, and the soldiers were quite surprised that they needed so many soldiers and so many weapons for an 87-year-old man who clearly was not in any hurry to go anywhere. And Polycarp find out, found out why they were there, and he said, could we please prepare dinner for you because you have to be out and miss your dinner at home? And the soldiers were like, sure. What soldier's not going to eat dinner? May I pray, please, before we go? Yes. And so while the household prepared food and dinner for the soldiers, Polycarp did not run away. Polycarp did not flee, but for two hours prayed in the presence of these soldiers. Prayed for his church, prayed for himself. And then when the time came, he says, all right, let's go. In the process of leading him into the city, People who knew Polycarp and were not followers of the faith admonished him, all you need to do is say, Caesar is Lord, and they'll set you free. I will not do what you're asking me to do. He's brought into the stadium. And Christians attestify to the fact in, in the martyrdom of Polycarp, which is a letter that circulated about this event, which is why we know it, that Christians all heard an audible voice that simply said, Polycarp, be faithful and be the man. He's brought before the proconsul, who's the governor for the area. He's kind of overcome. He, says, he sees this 87-year-old man in front of him and wanting to be gentle, an 87-year-old man. All you need to do is denounce this Christian sect and say that Caesar is God and I will set you free. He says this, for 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? I have wild beasts outside. They will eat you alive. He begins to take off his robe. What are you waiting for? The proconsul is getting really agitated. I will burn you at the stake for this. He says, you threaten me with a temporary fire and you know nothing of the fire of coming judgment for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? The crowd's in arms. The crowd in bloodlust is furious. They're throwing down whatever pieces of wood that they can find. They build a pyre right there. Soldiers walk over with nails in hand. They're going to nail him so that he won't run. Holly Carp looks at them and he says, the one who will bring me to the fire will bring me through the fire. 
You don't need to nail me. They don't nail him. They tie him. And the fire's lit. Those who wrote about the account said that the fire seemed to be a whirlwind around him. But it wasn't burning his flesh. In fact, it almost appeared to not even touch him. And so the proconsul was so frustrated, a Roman soldier took a sword, thrusting it through the flames into Polycarp, and his blood spilt there on the ground. The proconsul was so concerned that Christians would start to worship Polycarp because of this testimony, because of this act, and surely it brought the entire crowd to peace and wonderment. Those who were followers of Jesus, those who weren't that they were going to have the body taken away. But the Christian said, don't you know who we are? We worship Jesus alone. And so the letter, the martyrdom of Polycarp, the account was sent to churches, calling them to faithfulness in the midst of a culture that would have them compromise. What does it take to burn bright? Jesus said there are two ways to build your life. A wise man builds his life on God's instructions, like a house on a strong foundation. For more teaching from this ministry, go to whoishouseontherock.com. If you don't have a church, please consider being our guest on a Sunday morning. Again, visit whoishouseontherock.com for more information.